I wanted to just kind of maybe hopefully kind of bring everything into a nice little package for you as you think of what we've been talking about this last week. We started with the promised Savior on Palm Sunday weekend, the one who had been promised literally since the Garden of Eden is Jesus who had come. And then if you were with us on Good Friday, we talked about how not just the promised Savior, but he was also the humble son who was willing to obey his father and to come and to be a sacrifice for our sins. And today we are dealing with this idea that he is the eternal king. The one who reigns, the one to whom God has given a name that is above every name that he is the eternal king. Now, the issue is, though, uh, that creates a little bit of a, of a question, doesn't it? I mean, if Jesus is the eternal king, then why are we all at home under self-quarantine because of this coronavirus? Uh, and we've seen, you know, thousands of people die from worldwide. I mean, isn't Jesus good? Isn't he compassionate? Kind? Uh, and, and if he's the eternal king, does he not have the ability to do something? And yet it's, you know, it seems as though that this is going on outside of that. And so that question of the eternal king, why do we have so much pain in this world? Why so much suffering? And the passage I want to look at today, so if you've got your Bibles, is John chapter 11 actually addresses this question. John chapter 11, so if, if you've got your Bibles or maybe you've got your Bible app, you can turn there. But it really brings about this idea of the problem. And the problem can be expressed a lot of different ways, but just simply let me put it like this. Why would Jesus, if he's the eternal king, why would he allow for there to be sickness, disease, and death? I mean, the story we're going to look at, his really good friend, Lazarus, dies. Why? You know, many of you know my story. I was 28 years old. My wife and I were expecting the birth of our first son, our first child, and in the midst of him being born, complications set in. And two days later, she died and she never got to see him. She never got to hold him. He's 23 years old. I was thinking this week, uh, as I was looking at this passage, it reminded me of the story of my friend Troy, Troy Gilbert. Troy was the only F-16 pilot who was killed during the Iraq war. Troy was a good man, loved Jesus, had a wonderful wife, five little kids, two little babies, twins. And he's over doing the mission in Iraq. And one day when he was flying, there was a helicopter, a special ops uh, that went down. And they were about to be overrun by the insurgents and killed. And they called in the air support, and that was Troy. And Troy came in on his F-16 and did a strafing run and got them a, a momentary of safety. But as he came up and around, they came back. And as he came back the second time to drive them out and to protect the lives of those soldiers, which he did, he saved every single one of them. His plane crashed. He died. 
left a widow, five small children. Why? Why death? Why disease? Why would a good God allow all this to happen? Now, there's a, there's a theological answer to that. And the theological answer is this, that God, the eternal king, in his grace, in his compassion, allows a fallen world to continue. And you may be sitting there going, now, come on, Steve, what do you, what do you mean? Well, think about it. If God decided that tomorrow, let's say 24 hours from right now, that he was going to put an end to all pain, all suffering, all death, all disease, all sickness, anything unholy, unrighteous, it would be gone. Man, it almost sounds like heaven, right? So let me ask you, 24 hours and one minute from right now, who of us would be here to be able to enjoy that? I mean, don't we hurt people with our words? With our selfishness? With our greed? Sometimes with our dishonesty? And the reality is, is that God in his compassion has chosen not to do that yet. One day he will, and he will create that perfect utopia. But God in his compassion, and yet he knows what we're going through and he feels it. In fact, in this story, uh, as you skip ahead a little bit, all the way down to verse 35, his friend Lazarus has died and now Jesus has met with his two sisters. He sees their heartache. He goes to the tomb. And if you're ever playing Bible trivia, you'll want to know this. Shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty-five. Jesus wept. You see, he is an eternal king who cares and is compassionate. But he also understands our hurts. So what's fascinating to me is that as Jesus answers this question, and the question is actually found in verse 21, Martha, who's Lazarus' sister, comes to him and says, Lord, if you had been here, then my brother would not have died. Now, let me give you a little backstory to this. Jesus was really good friends with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, their two sisters and a brother. They lived just outside of Jerusalem in a place called Bethany. Jesus often stayed with them. Jesus had been ministering actually over east of the Jordan River, was probably about 50 miles away. Lazarus got sick. Now, the sisters knew Jesus loved Lazarus and Jesus had the ability to heal. They had seen him heal the, the sick and, and realized that Jesus didn't even need to be there. He could just say the word. So they sent word to Jesus, probably took a messenger two days to get there to tell Jesus Lazarus is sick. Jesus will take care of it. <laughs> Yet what we read is, is that Jesus did nothing in verse six. In fact, he just remained where he was for two more days before he traveled on down. And so now, at the time he gets to Bethany, Lazarus, his friend, is dead. And not just dead by an hour, not just dead by half a day. He is dead four days. I mean, it's past the time for a miracle. And Martha comes out and asks him, Lord, where were you? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus doesn't answer her question here 
with the theological answer, but he answers it with a promise of hope in the midst of her pain. And I don't know what you may be going through. I don't know if you've been affected by the coronavirus, either physically or maybe somebody that you love, or maybe it's affected you financially, you've lost a job, or maybe you're just going through some pain or hurt or suffering in some other way. But that's what I want to offer you today. I want to offer you a word of hope, a promise of hope. And the promise is found here in John chapter 11. Jesus' promise in verse 25 is this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. What a wonderful promise. So Lazarus is dead, but hope's not dead. You'll see him again. There's a future resurrection. Death is not this big black hole where people go in and never come out. There is a day where there will be a resurrection. It's a wonderful promise that we have. But then in verse 26, he gets a second promise that's even better. And he says this, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus gives us the hope that we'll never have to face death. And you say, wait a minute, Steve, how can that be? Yeah, you're right. Because he's talking to Martha He's going to talk to Mary. He's going to go out to the tomb and raise Lazarus from the dead. And they all believe in him, but they're not walking the earth today. They died. So what does he mean? He who lives and believes in me will never die. And for over 2,000 years, people have believed in Jesus, but they've died. So what does he mean? What does this promise mean? He who lives and believes in me will never die. Well, you see, because he's the eternal king, he understands us better than we understand ourselves. He understands that the real us is not this body. The real us is our spirit. It's our soul. It's what inhabits this body. That's why you can go have an operation and have a gallbladder taken out or have a knee replaced. And when you come out of the surgery, it's still you. Uh, or you can lose your hair, or God forbid, you can lose a limb in an accident, but you're still you because this body, this body's really just the housing. And what Jesus is telling us is that for those that believe in him, they will never die. When this body takes its last breath, when this heart beats its last time, we don't face death. We don't face unconsciousness. We don't face going into the black hole of the unknown. What we have is the promise that to be absent from this body is to be present with Jesus. Folk, there is no soul sleep. There is no purgatory. There is no great abyss. There is, there is the promise that he who believes in me will never die. Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for we know that if our house, which is this body, is torn down, that we have a building of God not made with hands that's eternal in the heavens. Folk, it, it is a wonderful promise that we have that we can have and know eternal life. But that raises another important question. And the question is, how do we know Jesus can keep that promise? You know, it's probably not too hard because there have been those claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the Son of God that have come upon the world scene for thousands of years. 
And for Jesus just merely to say, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. It's easy to say. How do we know it's true? What's the proof that Jesus really is who he said he was? And that he can do what he said he could do? And what's fascinating to me is that when Jesus was asked this in his ministry, he never offered his miracles or his teaching or even his power over nature as that proof. Now, you would thought he would, right? It's like, well, well look, I, I can heal the leper. I can make the, the lame to walk, the blind to see. Uh, come on, let's go out to the seashore in the midst of the storm. I'll calm the storm. Or walk with me to the tomb of Lazarus and watch them roll away the stone and I'm going to yell, Lazarus, come forth, and he's going to come hopping out. But Jesus never pointed to those things. When Jesus was asked, how do you prove that you are who you say you are, that you can do what you say you can do? He always pointed to just one thing. Just one thing. And that was simply this. You're going to kill me. You're going to put me in the ground. And three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. In fact, the first time we read about it is in John chapter 2. It's very early in Jesus' ministry. He's just uh, driven out the money changers from the temple. And the Pharisees come to him and says, what sign do you show us that you have authority to do these things? <laughs> and Jesus looked at him and said, destroy this temple. Three days, I'll raise it up. Later on in his ministry, in Matthew chapter 12, he was asked, give us a sign, give us a sign to prove who you are. And Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He says it again in Matthew 16. And don't let anybody tell you, well, oh, that was all kind of in code. Only Jesus and his followers knew that. No, no, absolutely not. The Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus had promised. Because when Jesus dies on the cross and they quickly take him down and put him in a tomb, the Pharisees go to Pilate and say, hey, this man, this deceiver, when he was alive, claimed that he was going to rise from the dead. So Pilate, you need to seal the tomb. You need to put Roman soldiers there. We've got to keep the body in. They knew exactly what Jesus had claimed. That would be the proof. So we're in John chapter 11. Jesus talks to Martha. Then he talks to Mary. They go out to the, to the tomb. He has them roll back the stone. and He cries out, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes out. He's alive. About three months later, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, colt, on that Passover weekend. And he has dinner many of the nights out in Bethany. And then he's arrested. And he's condemned to death. And he's 
taken by the Roman soldiers and he is tied to a rope and whipping post. And 39 times with a cat of nine tails, he's whipped with that Roman whip. They take a, a bush that's very thorny. If you've ever been to Israel, you've seen the thorns about two inches long and they crafted it into a, into a crown and they placed it upon his head. And then they put the crossbeam upon his shoulders and they led him through the streets as the people mocked, as the people looked upon him in his nakedness and his shame. They led him outside of the city and there they impaled him with nails into that cross. And he's lifted between heaven and earth. And Jesus, the eternal king, dies on that cross in our place. He's paying our penalty. He's purchasing our freedom, our home in heaven. As we talked about last week at the, at the um, thinking of the Passover as, as Jesus suffers on that cross and, and the father turns his back on his own son and for three hours that supernatural darkness that fell upon the face of the earth. Jesus is, is there for us. You remember how Isaiah put it? Isaiah 53, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquity. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, who? We. We are healed. So Jesus hangs on the cross, pays the penalty for our sin. He he then dismisses his spirit and he dies. Now, to make sure he was dead, they came around and they were going to break his legs because most people, how you died on the cross was you died from lack of oxygen. They would would bend your knees just enough that you could continue to raise up and, and grab a breath. That's why many people live for a day or two. But to hasten the death because of the Passover, they came and they broke the legs of the, the two thieves on either side. But when they came to Jesus, it was already dead. But to make sure, they took the spear and they rammed it up his side. And we're told the blood came out mixed with water. Most likely the tip of that spear pierced his heart and the sack around his heart. And that water and blood came flowing out. They took him down. They wrapped him in the claws, the ointments. They laid him in a cold, damp tomb. They rolled a two-ton stone in front of the door. They seal it with the Roman seal. They put the Roman soldiers out front because they knew what he had promised. But Jesus, the eternal king, then rose from the dead on that third day. And now he offers the hope of heaven, the promise of eternal life to everyone who believes. Jesus conquered death. He proved that he was who he said he was. He was the eternal king. He was the son of God. He proved that he could do what he said he would do. And that is to everyone who believes in him, they will live even if they die. And everyone who lives and believes in him will never die. Jesus proved it 2,000 years ago when he conquered death and the grave. And Jesus promised to us today 
that we can know forgiveness, that we can know that promise of life is only experienced by faith. I wanna take you back to those verses we've been looking at today. And I wanna look at them one more time, but a little more carefully. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who, what? Believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives in what? Believes in me will never die. He doesn't say, hey, I'm the resurrection and life, and he who lives a good life will live even if he dies. Or he doesn't say, and everyone who, who lives and keeps the Ten Commandments will never die. No, because it's not about those, those things. Not to be critical of them, but none of those things will bring eternal life. It's only Jesus. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So, folk, on this Easter 2020, sitting there watching this on your screen, could it be that maybe God has brought us to this moment because this is the moment he wants you to hear this message of truth, this promise of hope, and then to have to answer this question yourself, have you come to believe in Jesus? And I hear people say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. You know, I would believe you as the son of God. Well, you do know that demons believe that, right? Remember when he, he was casting the demons out of the demoniac and they said, what have you to do with this, thou son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? They knew who Jesus was. Oh no, when I even believe he died on the cross. Well, you know, the Pharisees believed he died on the cross. But they didn't have eternal life. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What it means is, is that I believe that when he died, he died for me. He was pierced through for my transgressions. That Jesus paid it all. And so I put all of my trust and all of my hope in him and in him alone. And that's the question. Have you done that? John said in his book, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. Have you come to put your faith and trust in Jesus? Have you asked him to be your savior? It's a matter of faith. And faith is a matter of the will. It's not a matter of the emotions. We choose to believe. Have you chosen to believe that Jesus died for you and that he paid for your sins and in doing so invited him to be your savior? If you haven't, ah, I got great news for you. You can do it right where you are. You can have the promise that he who believes in Jesus and lives will never die if you will come and, and put your trust in him. And again, it's not about saying the right words. It's not about praying a prayer. It's, it's about faith. But so often how we express faith is through our words. So often we do it through prayer and we just ask him. And maybe you want to do that right now, just in your own heart. Or maybe out loud, just something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. 
I believe that you were pierced through for me. That you paid for my sins. And I want you to be my savior. Please forgive me. Make me your child. Lord, give me that promise of eternal life that I will live for you forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming into my life. Amen. And Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful that your promise, that you proved by your very resurrection, your promise is he that believes in you will live even if he dies. We look forward to that future resurrection, but better yet, that he who lives and believes in you will never die. Lord, we don't have to fear death. And for those who maybe just in this moment have invited you to be their savior, they have put their trust in you. Lord, they have now become your children. You've given them a home in heaven. Help them now to grow in their relationship with you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.